1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I was out there waiting, you know, on this particular coral finger, and I stopped and I looked around, and like there's just nothing out there. And I looked to my left, I saw some big bone fish. I looked ahead, I could see a little trigger fish tail pop up. And I looked to my right, and there is uh, some like, I think it was a barracuda or something like that. I'm just like, wow, this is literally the coolest thing ever. Cause it's like, okay, well, what do I wanna do? Should I go left and, you know, try for the bone fish? Should I walk straight ahead and try to, you know, get the trigger fish? Or should I go right and just, you know, catch whatever that was, barracuda or whatnot, you know, it's just like, to me, it was just surreal. And then, like I said, you take a step back and you just, you think where you're at, and you're just like, holy cow. You know, I'm I'm sitting on this beautiful finger flat in the middle of nowhere, you know, which is basically a pristine environment. It's untouched. You know, the fishery's in great shape. There's bonefish to my left. There's a trigger fish in front of me. And there's other fish to my right. You know, just like, it's just, it was truly a surreal moment for me, just realizing, just kind of taking a step back. And at that point, honestly, I didn't even care if I was casting at that point. I was like, I just wanted to sit there and just kind of, you know, I've, I'm okay for a few minutes. You know, I'm just gonna soak this up because this is this is pretty cool. Hey guys, this is Kyle Jemis, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. That was my friend Kyle Jemis. He just got back from an amazing trip to the Seychelles. That's a place I want to go. I don't know if you guys know where the Seychelles are. You probably do. It's uh, it's a dream trip for most fly fishermen, most fishermen, I guess. I don't know. Fly fishermen tend to really like it. it it's just amazing. Lots of wading opportunities, lots of boat opportunities, lots and lots and lots of different kinds of species that uh, we don't really get a chance to fish for over here. Kyle uh, told me he was prepping for this trip. I said, man, when you get back, I want to check it out. I want to do a podcast with you and find out all about it because very few places these days give me wanderlust, but the Seychelles is one of them. Man, that's a place I'd like to go. I want to go in the worst way. And uh, Kyle told me all about it, everything from what the trip was like to the the travel, going through Dubai, um, spending some time with his wife over there, which is pretty cool. He was able to take a non-fishing companion and she also had a great trip. Um, and then they actually get there and go through the fishing. We talked about what the fishing was like, things that he should have brought, things that uh, made the trip better, and uh, just his overall experience. I thought it was awesome. Made me want to go. I'll tell you what, man. If you are thinking about a trip, get ready. This is a podcast you don't want to miss. Kyle Jemis, coming back from the Seychelles. 
Kyle, man, what's going on? Tom, what's going on, brother? I'm feeling good, doing every, doing great. I'm li- really looking forward to hearing about your trip. We've been communicating a little bit by email, but so you just went to the Seychelles, is that correct? I did. I was definitely one of the lucky few who was able to get over there, and it was a fantastic time for sure. So how long have you been planning this trip? Well, you know, it's probably been in the works. So we just got back about two and a half weeks ago, so we went in April. And I think I booked it probably around January of the year before. So about almost a year and a half ago. Yeah. And so what was it that made you pull the trigger on, on that particular trip? I, I mean, I've, I've done a few extended trips. I guess the longest one that I've been a part of was Christmas Island, which is a long way out there. But the Seychelles is further and more involved and more expensive and more everything. So like, what, what was it that made you pull the trigger on that particular trip? Sure. Sure. Well, you know, for me, I guess, first off, you know, I'm lucky and blessed enough to be able to travel, you know, and fish. Um, most of my fishing, as you know, I'm a big fly guy. So that's pretty much all I do is saltwater fly fishing. And for me, that's always pretty much always just been down in the keys, you know, Mm -hmm. most of my fishing is really just down there, you know, a couple spots in the Caribbean, Grand Cayman, whatnot, but really pretty much all my fishing experiences to date have been solely in the Florida Keys, which is a phenomenal place to fish, as you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, um, for me, I've always kind of been curious, you know, kind of what's outside the keys, you know, kind of what's outside the box that we live here in the U.S. And don't get me wrong, we have a phenomenal fishery, you know, down in the keys. We have phenomenal fishing in the U.S., but I've always been curious about, you know, just kind of being immersed in this world of saltwater fly fishing that we live in, you know, kind of seeing what else is out there. And, you know, obviously there's things around here, Bahamas, Mexico, there would have been easier places to get to logistically, and then probably financially too. <laughs> but uh, I just figured, you know, if I was going to do it, I really wanted to do it right, you know. And I was, again, lucky enough to have the time and the resources to commit to doing something big like the Seychelles, which for a lot of saltwater flyingers, I really think is kind of like the Mount Everest of kind of, you know, where we want to go to fish. And then for me, part of the allure, I mean, obviously I went there to fish, right? But then for me, Another part of the allure of going was just the adventure and, you know, the logistics, just getting there. So yeah, well, let's, for me, t- let's talk about twofold. that. Like, what, what does that look like to, to get there? Like, where, yeah. where are you, where are you coming from? And then how long a trip is that? Yeah, for sure. So right now um, I live in Dallas, Texas, which, you know, I'm very lucky to be in Dallas, Texas, because it's a great uh, place and a great launching point for a lot of trips. You know, we have two major airports here, DFW and Dallas Love Field, and two major airlines, you know, headquartered here, American and Southwest. So I can pretty much, I always brag, I, I tell people I can pretty much fly anywhere in the world, you know, nonstop or direct, <laughs> which is pretty cool. But logistically, it wasn't too bad. So what I ended up doing is I flew from uh, Dallas uh, directly to Dubai which was about, you know, a good 14, 15 hour flight. And then what was cool is in Dubai, I had about a 14 to 15 hour layover, which was neat because that allowed me an opportunity to kind of go out and explore and kind of see what Dubai was all about, you know, which was really neat. And then from Dubai, 
I flew then down to the Seychelles. It's kind of like Hawaii in the sense that you fly basically into the main island, um, which is about a four-hour flight from Dubai. And then from there, you take a a smaller plane, you know, a chartered kind of prop plane over to kind of the outer islands and atolls you'll be fishing at. Um, So total, it was three different flights and about 20 hours of total flying and about 11,000 miles, but uh, I made it in about two days. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. What'd you think about Dubai? You know, it was really interesting because obviously I really had never been, well, really out of the hemisphere, but especially, you know, over the ocean or anything before. You know, I've been to Canada, I've been to Mexico, I've been to parts of the Caribbean, but I've never been over the Atlantic, never been to Europe, nothing. So for me, it was really cool just to go somewhere completely different, completely different people, culture, just part of the world. Everything was new and kind of different and exciting. I was really looking forward to Dubai. You know, when I got there, it was, I guess, as advertised in the sense that, you know, I I think you see a lot on TV or social media or whatnot. You know, when you think Dubai, you think, you know, obviously a lot of, you know, kind of fancy things, cool buildings, money, car, you know, all, all that. And that's all there for sure. But I guess the thing that surprised me the most about Dubai was, one, just how incredibly clean the city was. I mean, it was spotlessly clean. Like, I did not, I'm, I'm not even kidding. And I, I went around, a, you know, quite a lot of different parts of the city. But I'm not kidding when I say this. There is not one piece of litter on the street. Hmm, it was cool. It was immaculate. And then culturally, it was really cool, too. Because obviously, you know, you're right there in the Middle East, which, you know, for some people probably brings up a lot of different feelings one way or another. But Dubai is very cool because it's it's in the Middle East. Um, it's very progressive for being in the Middle East. You kind of have a blend of a little bit of everything. There's a heavy Western influence. Um, everything is in either uh, English or Arabic. <laughs> so it's it's pretty conducive to, you know, people from the West traveling out there because it's it's not hard to you know, figure out and get around and, you know, they have Uber and I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, like I said, parts of that town and city, you would think you were, you know, somewhere in like California or LA. I mean, it's that Western, you know, and then it's cool because there's also parts of town that are definitely more traditional and not Western. So you can kind of get a little bit of a mix of both depending on what you kind of want to do. So I, I really thought Dubai was uh, really fantastic and really, really enjoyed uh, getting the opportunity to spend some time there on both the front end and the back end. You know, they have a lot of, I've never been to Dubai, but they, I, I watched the film that Frank Smethers did where he was catching the queen fish right there. I mean, right under the buildings of Dubai there, apparently there's a pretty good queen fish population. They're kind of like Jack Ravel's of the, of that part of the world, but those fish are fun. They jump, they eat all kinds of different flies and lures and everything, but they had a remarkable trip with, with the queen fish. I don't guess 14 hours offered you enough time to fish there, but <laughs> that would, that would be a lot, a lot of extra fishing on the trip. Like you just took. It would definitely be something I want to do next time. I brought my wife with as a non angling companion on this trip too. And we always kind of wanted to use those 14 hours to kind of do some, I guess, more land-based activities but uh, I know the queen fishing there is really awesome. And then, of course, you know, when you're catching these things, you know, with skyscrapers and yachts in the background, it's pretty cool, too. So didn't get a chance to do that this trip, but you can definitely put me down for that round, too. <laughs> yeah, I got a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for the queen fish because 
I didn't really know what they were, but when I took my trip to Australia, which is one of my, that's kind of my big trip. Like you, like you just took, like, that's the one that when I think about it, that's the, it's definitely the biggest, most involved, most remote trip that I've ever taken was to this, this trip to the most Northern part of Australia, the Bay of Carpentaria. And I was introduced to the queen fish there and we were catching these fish and they were just big. And I, I mean, I didn't know how big they were. I didn't know if they were baby queen fish or, but something about them kind of made me think, you know, this, this just looks like a full grown fish. Like it does like this, it's heavy bodied, you know, everything about it kind of made me think that this is a, a big one, but I had never seen one before and I didn't really know what, what to expect. So we go back to the boat and I look at the, uh, at the world record book that they had in the boat. And sure enough, man, everything we were catching is really close to like world record size. Wow. And so we, I had never done this either. And we had certified boga grips and everything. And we went out and caught, um, some world records. That's, that was Dottie Ballantyne's introduction to world record fishing. And she went on to, she, she got the bug, went on to catching, uh, over a hundred world records over the next probably 10 years. But that fish is really cool. It's a, it's a, it's a cool fish. It's kind of a mix, I think, between like a mackerel and a jack. They, and, and just aggressive and fun and cool. I think we caught them on every type of fly and lure. You can, you know, bottom to the top, top to the bottom. They eat all kinds of stuff. But anyway, they've got them there. And I'd like to go there too. It looks cool. You definitely like it. Definitely, you know, if you get the chance, make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Did you eat there? In Dubai, in yeah, Dubai? absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So What's it's the it cuisine. Was, well, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit of everything, you know. And that's kind of what I like about Dubai, like I was telling you earlier, just kind of whatever you want to make it, you know, there's, I mean, you can go there and, you know, again, you'd feel like you're in America, you know, you could have hot dogs, cheeseburgers, you know, <laughs> steaks, <laughs> it's, you know, French fries. I mean, like I said, literally feel like you're in America. So on the front yeah, end, went we all the way ate, to Dubai and got a Big Mac and got a Big Mac. That's it. You know, <laughs> so, you know, on the front end of the trip, we kind of, I guess, spent more time kind of kind of the western parts of town so we had you know our traditional american food and then on the back end of the trip on the way back to the states after we got back from the seychelles we did you know an arabian safari we went to some of the local marketplaces called souks and then we had traditional arabic food which is really good you know a lot of kind of kebabs uh lamb chicken a lot of hummus of course really good stuff. So we kind of had both ends of the trip. We kind of eased our way on the front end, you know, with the, uh, the Big Mac approach, like you said, <laughs> and then on the back end went, you know, completely local and traditional, which is pretty cool too. So we kind of got to experience both. What's your wife think about this trip? She was, uh, you know, she, I always, she's, she's pretty cool. You know, she's my adventure partner. And, um, you know, I, I told her, you know, probably a couple years ago when I was really getting serious about, you know, booking this trip, I said, you know, I really, really want to do this. You know, it's definitely kind of a Mount Everest thing for me. And obviously I'm going there to fish, you know, would love to, you know, have you come with, but obviously don't feel the need to come with, you know, but if you did want to come with where we're going, you know, it's considered, uh, you know, conducive to bringing a non-angling companion. Um, And she, you know, she was all over it. You know, like I said, we, we love to travel together. And for her, I think the opportunity to travel, you know, that far and experience new places and cultures really kind of resonated with her too. So she was, 
she was just as stoked as I was, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I was out fishing and she was out snorkeling and whatnot and just saw some amazing things. So it was, it was kind of a win-win for both of us, you know, and it was cool that we got to kind of experience Dubai and then just obviously the Seychelles together that way. So it was, it was a neat experience for sure. And she was, uh, like I said, just, just as fired up as I was and, uh, kind of blown away with just the experience as a whole. That's cool. So, so you go to Dubai and so far it's kind of a conventional type type trip. You got on a commercial airline and, and then to get to the fishing location, once you're finished with Dubai and you kind of pack up your stuff and you're, you're like, okay, now we're, now we're headed someplace. Well, I mean, it seems pretty remote by looking at the map, but I don't know. So what does it look like from that, from the Dubai to actually get into the fishing location? Sure, sure. So after Dubai, um, we had one more, I guess, commercial flight. So we flew commercially from Dubai right to uh, Mahe, which is uh, the capital, Victoria City, kind of the capital of the Seychelles. Now, the Seychelles themselves, I, I kind of compare them to Hawaii in the sense that, you know, it's it's a chain of islands, you know, some are more inhabited and populated than others, and similar type of topography and landscape too. Very hot, humid, tropical, lush. But the country as a whole, I think if I remember correctly, it's only like a population of about 300,000 people. So it's pretty, you know, there's not a whole lot out there. You're about a thousand miles east, southeast of Somalia, basically off the coast of Africa. So commercially, like I said, we flew from Dubai into the main island. And then at that point in time, we had a few hours and then we went to a different part of the airport and there you go, you hop on a charter flight through the uh, outfitter and lodge. Um, they kind of put together, um, it's a little prop plane. It seats about, you know, probably 16 to 18 people. Um, and then you fly about another hour. It's about 300 miles southwest of the main island. And it's very remote. I mean, you're totally, totally off the grid. And I think for me, at least, kind of stepping on that charter kind of prop plane is kind of when I realized like, man, this is, this is, this is out there, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was neat, very remote, you know, and then once you got to the island, even more remote, I mean, and you couldn't even try to, you, you go on Google earth, a map, and it's just, you know, it's just a speck, you know, you can't even see it, you know, it's, it's, you just assume there's land there. It's somewhere out in the water. I mean, it is uber remote, uber off the grid. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're definitely out there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so what, what lodge or outfit did you go with? Yeah. So in the Seychelles, the outer islands, um, there's two outfitters. Um, there's an outfit called Fly Castaway. They have two programs. They have an atoll called Farquhar, and they also have a liveaboard operation called Providence. And then the other outfitter out there is uh, called the Alphonse Fishing Company. They have four different islands right now, Alphonse Island, Cosmolito, Astov and uh, Poiv. And, you know, each kind of island and atoll is kind of unique. You know, the fishery is a little bit different in each one. But uh, so we booked, our outfitter was Alphonse Fishing Company. Um, and then we stayed at their, their Alphonse Island kind of lodge and outpost. And that's where we spent the week. And one of the reasons, like I said, why I kind of gravitated towards that was awesome fishery, incredible variety of things to fish for. And then, you know, very nice accommodations for as remote as you are. I mean, like I said, we, we definitely lived right for as remote as we were. Um, and then obviously 
non-angling component for my wife. It was very conducive, you know, things for her to do. They had a pool there, which is cool. You know, she could snorkel, she could dive, she could walk around, hang out on the beach. You know, there's plenty of things for non-angling folks to do. And then for me, the angling part was just, you know, it was top notch. So it was kind of a win-win for both of us. And like I said, we, you know, there's no, obviously there's no cell phone. There's no Wi-Fi, well, no Wi-Fi, no TV. You had enough kind of Wi-Fi at the kind of bar area to maybe send a text message. But I mean, you're pretty much disconnected from the world for a week. So it was, uh, it was, it was out there. But uh, like I said, for the week though, we did live, uh, you know, quite comfortably. The food was very good. They have these little bungalows you kind of stay at with little air conditioning. So we weren't dying because it, you know, it's pretty hot. You know, you're basically just below the equator and it's incredibly hot and humid. You know, I've been to Florida quite a bit in July and August and uh, I thought that was hot and humid, but uh, this definitely gave me a new appreciation of uh, <laughs> what hot and humid truly means. <laughs> so I, what did I, I you think, think re- about, what did you think about the sun strength? Oh man, just brutal. I'm always a big proponent of, you know, pants and long sleeves and, you know, getting the old buff for the face, but it was, it was incredibly potent. I mean, it was, you, you, you'd want to cover as much skin as possible. I mean, you, <laughs> it doesn't take much. Cause like I said, you're basically right on the equator and it, uh, it'll light you up for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been kind of at that latitude before and it's surprising. Like, you know, you're in Key West or whatever you think, well, you know, I work out in the sun basically every day and it's, you know, I'm pretty well used to this. But man, you go down there and you get hammered. Same thing was us with Australia. I, I found that the the sun was way stronger. And like my son, you know how when you wear the buff and and there's like this little ring between your between the shirt and your your buff sometimes. Oh like yeah, a little like a about a quarter inch, maybe a half inch on some people. Sure. Man, my son got so sunburned right there on that one. He should have had that other buff thing that kind of capes out at the bottom those yeah, things are sure. really good you can tuck those into your into your shirt for that kind of trip that's that's the way to go but anyway he would he started wearing two buffs he would like wear one and then that wasn't even enough and he started safety pinning the buff to his t-shirt <laughs> so that there was no chance that it would ride up because he just i mean day one he just got worked man but that's that's always you know a danger when you're going to those type of locations just you just don't realize how strong the sun is there it's it's incredible well then another thing too tom real quick which is kind of interesting the water set up there it was all just desalinated salt water so you would drink water and sometimes it was almost like you were having a hard time kind of quenching your thirst because the water was completely desalinated there was no you know like you know electrolytes or minerals or nutrients in it (laughs) so it was kind of a double whammy effect and they recommended you kind of bring these little electrolyte tablets with to kind of put in your water bottles or whatnot just to kind of give you a boost because the water itself with the desalination, some people were having some hard, a harder time staying hydrated just because you're not quite used to that, you know, so you kind of had a double whammy there, which is pretty interesting. Well, you could probably, I mean, if you, you know, survival, you could take some of the, the salt off the, you know, that evaporates on the boat and even just even just lick that for a while. Sure, sure. Something. You have to have salt. And when they pull everything out of that water, that's like drinking um, the distilled water. And uh, that's that's not good. 
you'll you'll end up getting in bad shape. So when you saw people getting in bad shape like that, what was happening to them? They were just what would what would they just get real tired or what? Yeah, I mean, like I said, you'd be out there because you know the fishing program is pretty similar to here. You know, kind of like an eight to four kind of deal. And you know, usually, like I said, you know, around you know one, two, three o'clock. You know, after you've been out there for four or five hours, you know, people were definitely uh, you know slowing down quite a bit, or you know, just had to you know kind of take a break for five, ten minutes, just kind of regather themselves and kind of refocus. So you know, it's a real thing. I mean, you, you saw, like I said, the negative effects of kind of just the hydration component, maybe the water and just not maybe properly hydrating. Cause like you said, I mean, it's really, really hot. And then usually, like I said, it was like clockwork, you know, last couple hours of the fishing day, you know, you kind of see who, uh, you know, was hydrated and who wasn't, or who was need a little bit, you know, extra kick. So just kind of slowing down a little bit lethargic, you know, maybe not as focused and it's uh it was a real thing for sure. Wow. That's cool. So when it comes to the fishing, there are a lot of species there, some of which you're probably familiar with, some you weren't, some were similar to other species. What all was available to you? Yeah, so we had some uh, things that we'd see here in the U.S., you know, the the bone fishing. Um, I know you like to bone fish. I do, too. The mm-hmm. bone fishing was, you know, I would describe it as uh, stupid. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen so many bone fish in my life, just clouds of fish, clouds of fish. So the bone fishing was phenomenal. I would challenge anywhere in the world to find a better bone fishery as far as quantity goes. So the bone fishing was off the chart. Um, then, of course, the real attraction for me is, and probably most anglers from the West too, would be the opportunity to fish for stuff that we don't have here in the U.S. You know, so you talked earlier about kind of the Jack Creval. Well, we got his big his big brother, the you know, the giant Trevally, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the bluefin Trevally, which is pretty cool. Beautiful fish. You have two or three different kinds of trigger fish, which are really kind of pretty, kind of interesting, goofy looking fish. You have Indo-Pacific permit. I know you're a big permit guy, you know, so that you have milkfish, you have many different things that you can't, or that you just wouldn't have the opportunity to cast to, you know, here in the West. So you had a couple of things you'd seen, you know, bonefish, whatnot, barracuda, things like that. But then you had this whole other kind of side of the coin that was things that, you know, you only see in pictures. And to me, just the variety and the opportunity, that that's kind of what really attracted me to uh, to the Seychelles. So when you first go there, like, did you have a strategy? Like, I want to go for these fish that I've never caught first? Or like, do you have to just immerse yourself into that sick bone fishing first? What what did you do? What did you yeah, do? So, I don't know. You know. I would be like, yeah, let's go out and bend the rod today. Let's go catch like a thousand bone fish and then I'll move on. After yeah, that. no, exactly. Exactly. And you know, that, that, that's kind of how it is for me. You know, I'm, I'm just there to really just have fun and have the rod bent as much as possible. And then obviously you let the conditions and the tides kind of dictate. So the, what was cool about the week I went is you had the first part of the week was neap tide. Okay. So that's real conducive to, you know, a lot of good bone fishing and trigger fishing. And then the last part of the trip, you know, more of a spring tide, more water was pushing out of the flats, which really get, you know, kind of the GTs, giant trevallis and the bluefins kind of excited and the milkfish too. So it was kind of fun to kind of experience kind of both ends of that spectrum. Um, and for me, it was really just, you know, what's the tide doing? Conditions will dictate. And that's kind of how I attacked it, you know, so based off the water levels, water movement, that's kind of how we would structure and set up our fishing days. And it was fun because, you know, that way we got to do a little bit of everything. 
and just great variety, you know? Yeah, that sounds cool. And, and of all the great variety, did you, did you end up fishing for the milkfish? You know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the milk fishing they do is outside the flats, but on the flats, they do swim quite a bit. So it, it wasn't a species that we would exclusively target, you know, for a couple hours or for a tide movement on the flats, but you'd see them, you know, we'd be out GT fishing or permit fishing and you would see these milkfish swimming and, they, and it, it's cool because they look like, you know, just massive, massive bonefish, you know, on crack. They just, they, they're mm. all over the place, you know, <laughs> and it's cool because you can see them coming. And what's neat about the guides out there, the milkfish itself, it just eats, you know, plankton and algae. It's not going to eat, you know, any kind of fish or bait fish or crab or anything like that. And they actually, mm-hmm. the guides out there over time, they made a couple specific milkfish flies, which just like look like little, you know, green puffs, you know, to imitate the algae. And you kind of throw it out there and just kind of let it float and hope the fish kind of, you know, sips it up or happens to see it. So for me, never spent time exclusively fishing for milkfish, but that said, you know, if you see one coming or a group coming on the flats, I don't care what the fly is. I'm putting a shot out there, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so it doesn't matter. So I I would do that. I didn't have any luck, but you definitely saw them. And I think, like I said, you could definitely catch them with the old algae fly I had in my, in my bag too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny. The the first time I went to Christmas Island, they didn't fish for them at all. They also didn't fish for the triggerfish. They just, just, you would look over there and they'd be like, something's tailing over there. Oh, it's a triggerfish and just move on. And you would just go and catch more bonefish or more uh, trevally. And then I went back to the Christmas Island almost 20 years later, 15 years later, I guess, somewhere, yeah, somewhere between 15 and 20 years later. And, and they were very sophisticated in their, in their triggerfish fishing and had flies for them and different techniques. And there were, there were anglers there that had come specifically for the trigger fish. They were, that's just what they were going to do all day. I just thought it was interesting how that had changed. They also did that on the milkfish. And I do know that, that the flies have been getting better over there in the Seychelles and people have really been targeting those milkfish. I've had an opportunity to hook those things a couple times and man, I mean, tarpon are cool. That milkfish is, I I'm going to say, I think that it may be the most powerful fish I've ever hooked. Sailfish, wahoo, tarpon, permit, any of them. I mean, that thing is incredible. And it, when you, if you see a picture of it, it almost looks like a, a fake Photoshopped picture when somebody's holding one up because it looks like some kind of a mullet with, with a, or a ladyfish with a, a tail that's about five times too big for it. And they just, man, those things are so powerful. I would love to go someplace where you could really target those, like more so. It sounds like that that could be a good place, but they do it. You know, I've seen a couple of different movies and films and stuff like that where they they fish for them and they'll they'll get pulled up or, or schooled up in these uh, in these areas like you're talking about, like off the flats, and they and there's some sort of current and you kind of drift uh, one of these algae flies through there and. Maybe it's like salmon fishing. Maybe you're just flossing them. I don't know what happens, but they do hook them and they do catch them. But man, my experience with those things is when you hook them, you better watch out, man. They are taking off like nothing I had ever hooked before. It was crazy. So what about the permit? Did you fish for those? 
Uh, we, we had the permit rod out a few times for sure. Yeah, kind of the trigger fish rod and the permit rod was similar. Um, you know, a lot of kind of crab flies. So what was cool is I did spend some time permit fishing. You know, we uh, I wouldn't say where I was at, Alphonse is probably a great permit fishery, but you definitely see fish. We probably spent probably about maybe like 30 minutes to an hour kind of each day, maybe dedicated to permit um, exclusively. And you see them, you know, it's, it's no different than permit fishing in the Keys, as you know, I mean, it's, you know, permit or permit. So, you know, you, sometimes you make the cast and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think I had probably about three quality shots at permit and I didn't connect any time, of course, as you know, it's a tough fish, but, uh, you know, the permit fishing was there and it was definitely part of the, uh, the, uh, the menu per se of, uh, fishing options. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And what about like fish like the queen fish? Are those around? They are. Um, they're in better numbers on some of the other atolls and islands they fish. Um, you don't see a whole lot on Alphonse where I was at, but I think I saw probably two or three, you know, throughout the week. They're there just in much, much limited numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, when we first, when you were first explaining like the outfit that you went to, you were saying Alphonse Fishing Company, right? That's the one? Yep. That you went yep. with. And then they had, you know, several places that they could go. Cosmoledo, which I've heard of. I had another friend, Fletcher White. He went there a long, long time ago and spoke very highly of it. Did you go to any of these other places or are you staying kind of in that Alphonse area? I stayed just in the uh, Alphonse area, now, which were was cool. There, were there opportunities to go there? Or like if you were to book a, if you were to book the trip and like, you wanted to go to those places would would that be possible or like how do, i've i've not looked into this trip enough to know like sure. if that's something that you can do on you know see several different places or if you just kind of decide on one yeah no absolutely no i guess to answer your question the answer is yes um so the way the way their structure and program works is all of their fisheries you know that cuz like i said they have four um alphonse astove cosmolito and poive they're all basically a week-long trip. So wherever you choose to go, that's where you're fishing for a week. So if you wanted to fish the other islands, you could, you just have to stay another week. And, you know, so, so for example, I bumped into some people who, you know, they fished Alphonse for the week and then the following week, you know, they're going to go to Cosmolito, you know, or the following week they're going to go to Astove. So that opportunity is there. I guess, like I said, it would just be um, they don't do any kind of like two, you know, days in Cosmo, two days at Astove. It doesn't quite work that way. It's all just, you know, you commit to the week program per atoll. And then if you want to stay, you can. It's just you got to wait another week. <laughs> so geographically, how far away are these places from one another? So you, like I said, you got the main island of the Seychelles. Uh, Alphonse is about 300 kilometers away. Um, I know we're in the U.S., so... Yeah, I can't do the conversion for you, but that's what they <laughs> said. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, a long way. Yeah, it's I, I just know it's a long way. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and and then from Alphonse, Cosmolito and Astov are about um, another three to four hundred kilometers west. Okay, so, so I mean, you're not talking about there. like like the difference between fishing Key West and the Marquesas or or, right, or Key right. West and Isla Mirada. I mean, these are they're, they're significant spans between these two so that makes a it's lot a more pretty sense big why, gap yeah why yeah. you would why you would have to pick and and choose and i guess you fly 
between the two places. Like if you do that, you're, you're going to get on another one of those charter flights. Correct. Yeah. So you would, uh, the way it works is they have a couple flights a week. So you'd fly from the main Island, like I did to Alphonse, like I did. And then basically that plane would continue on to Astov because they have a, an airport with a landing strip there, airport, not an airport. They have a landing strip there <laughs> and, uh, you land there. And if you're fishing Astov, you just, you know, you get off and you're good there. But if you're going to Cosmolito, then you'd have to take a boat from Astov to Cosmolito, which isn't too terribly far, but it'd be a few hours for sure. So Cosmolito would definitely be the, uh, one of the harder ones to get to as far as just extra, wow. you know, logistics. <laughs> So what about the guides that you're, uh, that you're fishing with? I mean, a, a while back, Yeti had a film about one of the guides there, kind of an interesting fellow. What, where, what nationality are these guides? What, what age group? Like what, what are the guides like? Yeah. I mean, the guides are, they're top notch, you know, very, very professional, very good at what they do. The vast majority are going to be from South Africa, very heavy South African influence. I'd say of the guide pool I'd say probably at least 75% are from South Africa. Beyond that, you have, there's a few Americans over there too, which is fun. So we got to fish with a couple of the American guides over there. And then beyond that, I guess it would be just kind of, you know, random places. You know, there's a couple guys from, you know, Zimbabwe or Botswana, or there's one guy from, you know, somewhere in Europe that, you know, or whatnot. So like I said, vast majority South African and then a couple Americans and a couple other folks who are, you know, from Europe or um, there's one or two folks even uh, who are Seychellese, um, which is, you know, so they're from the Seychelles, which is kind of cool too. Real top notch. I mean, they, they know what they're doing and they're, uh, they're pretty dialed and they're, uh, they're all good guys and uh, enjoyed fishing with uh, everybody. Cause the way it works is you get six fishing days and each day, I mean, unless you, you know, really want to just fish with one guy, but they kind of rotate you amongst the guides, which is kind of fun because it kind of allows you to, you know, just one meet and fish with other people, maybe see different parts of the lagoon or the flats. So it's really neat, just the opportunity to fish with, you know, different people throughout the week. Yeah. So I wonder how an American ends up in, in the Seychelles guiding. Did you, did you fish with some of those guys and get their stories? I, I did, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, the Alphonse fishing company, uh, the opportunity to guide out there, it's, it's very competitive. They're pretty, pretty choosy about, you know, who they kind of hire as guides. You know, I think the Jeff, one of the American guides I fished with was telling me that, you know, on average, you know, they get something like 2000 applications a year, <laughs> you know, to fill, you know, whatever, 20, 30 guides positions. I mean, it, it's pretty crazy. So they can really pick and handpick, you know, some of the best of the best. And it's like anything, you know, it, it, it helps if you have a connection or if you know somebody maybe within the industry or someone who can, you know, kind of help, you know, sweeten the pot a little bit with your, you know, resume. So in, in Jeff's particular instance, you know, he fished in Alaska, he guides in Alaska quite a bit and he had, you know, a sponsorship deal, I think with Cortland line. And then he was kind of able to use that one of his, you know, people there, kind of knew one of the fishing managers at Alphonse. They'd kind of talked before. And when they had an opening come up, he was kind of in a good spot to kind of, uh, you know, be ready to pounce on that opportunity. So that's how a lot of those guys get there. It's, you know, it's obviously you got to be good, but then it helps if you can, you know, maybe have a connection in the industry yeah. or maybe help know someone to kind of help uh, give you a little extra boost. That's, man, 
you're making you're giving me wanderlust right now <laughs> of uh wanting to go and then also wanting to say man i wonder if anybody would miss me for like eight months where if i just took off and tried to get a job at the in the seychelles that just seems so cool that seems so awesome maybe my wife wouldn't miss me for three four months well, you've been yeah, married long enough, it. Tom. I think you might be in the clear. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I've been married long enough, and and we're about to be empty nesters. That's what I'm saying, man. Uh, so you got some time. Be, yeah, well, I got three kids, you know. Two of them are already at college, and one of them is getting closer and closer. So you never know. Sure. You never know. But I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I'm sure I could bring I'm sure I could bring some people over there that would want would to fish, and that would be— I don't know. That would just be so cool. I think, you know, as somebody, you know, who's guided in, in other places, you would just, you would just think that's got to be like one of the, one of the, one of the places that, you know, it would have to be top of the list, I think of, of places where you could go and probably get in some real exploring. And there's some real opportunity there, I think for innovation and, and, you know, coming up with some new tactics or bringing some tactics from the keys over there and, and kind of, you know, not that those guys haven't seen it, but I think that if you, you know, you took a, a, a Florida keys guide and put them over there for a couple of months, I think some pretty special stuff would start happening with those milk fish or the trigger fish or the permit. Oh you yeah. Know, that seems really cool. And I'll tell you too, Tom, real quick, what's interesting is most of the fishing, well, not, I shouldn't say it, it's about 50, 50, the way they fish, you know, it's about 50% uh, percent of your time is going to be spent actually on a traditional polling skiff like the Keys, and the other 50% is going to be waiting around. So I know you know how to pull a skiff. So like I said, you know, I think there is something to that. You know, I, I really yeah, do. But the, you know, the, the thing about like my experience with, um, with Christmas Island, and one of the reasons why I liked that so much is because you could get out and you could wade these just expansive and basically never ending flats. Like you could find a never ending incoming tide in Christmas Island, sure. which is really something that I had never experienced before when I was there. I mean, I've, I've gone to the, the jolters at the, at the top of Andros and they have these huge, giant, massive white flats up there. But you know, the tide comes in and it gets to be high on the entire flat. In the inside of Christmas Island Lagoon, there are places where you just continue to you you get in in ankle deep water and you can tell that the tide's coming up. And if you just kind of keep walking a little bit to the right or to the left, whichever way is it is that the the tide's coming in, you just stay in that ankle deep water for hours and hours and hours and and you can look at these maps and you're like, oh, I see what was going on there. We kept going further and further back into this bay area and we were able to stay in the same depth of water and we were following this wave of fish that was coming up onto the flat. It was one of the coolest experiences I've ever ex experienced in my whole fishing career. I would imagine that you're seeing similar type things there, just, just waiting like for all day. And for a guy that fishes out of the boat most of the time, that is refreshing and awesome. I love, love, love that. It was neat, you know, and because I'm the same way, like I was telling you earlier, in the sense that, you know, pretty much all my fishing's in the Keys, which is going to be from the skiff, which is great. But it is cool for me to get the opportunity to, you know, go wade some just 
amazing flats. And like you said, I mean, here you can only imagine similar to Christmas Island, just really, really awesome. And like I said, if you just wanted to walk around all day, then you could easily do that. You know, um, it was really neat. So I, I enjoyed that as well. Just getting uh, able to stretch the legs out a bit. Cause that's, uh, that's definitely more of a new experience for me too. And yeah. definitely one of my and favorite when you, things to when do. you do that kind of fishing, like, like Christmas Island has some specific gear that you, you need. I mean, if you go there with certain type of wading boots, they're going to get shredded. If you go there with other types, you're going to be in good shape. What did you think about the wading there and the foot gear? Would you change what you took or, or not? Or were you happy with what you had? I was happy with what I had. You know, I had, I've had some good little wading boots. I think they're Sims boots. I've had those for a couple of years now for parts of my, you know, jaunts to the Caribbean or whatnot. Um, so I brought those with, and they were, you know, thick rubber, hard sole, you know, not like the neoprene stuff, like actual mm -hmm. thick, hard rubber. And that's definitely what you want. I mean, there's a lot of coral out there. You definitely want, you definitely want gravel guards. I brought that too, you know, and that's a real thing. You'll get chafed out of your mind without those. So footwear, I was pretty, pretty happy with what I had and it, it held up great, you know, during the week. Cause you, I mean, there's opportunities where, you know, sometimes if you're just, you know, walking a nice sandy bonefish flat, you can just kick the boots off and go barefoot, which is what I love to do the most. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on some of these other, they're called finger flats where there's a lot of coral and, you know, rubble and just thick, you know, kind of seaweed or, uh, you know, grass, whatnot. You definitely want to have boots, one, just because the coral is really sharp and then just the sand, the gravel, you don't want that chafing your feet. And then there's also some little critters, you know, that live within the seagrasses that can uh, definitely uh, sting, you know, and uh, strike your foot. You definitely would not want to be that remote having to deal with, uh, you know, a cone snail strike, for example. <laughs> so Cone snail. That's interesting. I don't know what that is, but a, uh, I was thinking a mantis shrimp could open you up pretty good. Uh, you see those too. Snail? Yeah, you see, you see those too. Um, but I, what I always worry about is, I guess, what you can't see in the seagrass. So, and because you're definitely, you know, stepping into it. So it helps having a good pair of uh, boots with you for sure. What is a cone snail? It's, it's a snail, you know, lives in a shell, right? Snail, duh. And it's unique and native only to the Indian Ocean. And it packs a pretty nasty bite or sting, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, if not in, in certain people actually can be fatal. Damn. It's pretty nasty. I mean, I, I would, I would, Do you have you know, to be walking really, really slow to get bit by a snail? Oh, yeah, yeah. You'd be okay. <laughs> I mean, the chances of it happening are one in a million, but like I said, you always got to think about the million. So you, you, you definitely want the proper kind of, you know, foot gear, which definitely helps for sure. Yeah. Well, when we, uh, when we went to Christmas Island the first time, the wading boot technology was not very good. And we all had the zip up, you know, side zip. Sure. Know, little traditional flats shoes. And I mean, one day you would just, those things were shredded. So we, we, we were told, you know, take two or three pairs of these things. So when we went back the second time, I was like, you know, even though like Sims makes some good ones, there's, there's quite a few different kind of flats boots, like out now that are a little more like a high top tennis shoe. Sure. But I even looked at those and I was like, you know, I'm going to go with these boots. Like, I went with like a, you know how you have like hiking boots and that, then you have like a lightweight hikers that are, that are kind of have like Cordura instead of just full on leather, they have kind of oh, yeah. Cordura between the leather. And I went with like a fast drying kind of 
speed hiker, like had a hiking shoe, hiking boot sole. Okay. And, uh, and it had, you know, partial leather sides and I got those for me and my boys and those were great. I mean, they lasted the whole time. And then we drilled some holes in the side to where the, the water would leak out and then there you go. Um, use the gravel guards. But man, that, that's something that a lot of people don't think about on those wading trips. Like you're going to be walking all day long sure. and you're just going to go out there in some flat soled little wimpy little wading boot. And, and, you know, for some people, I mean, you're going to be walking like seven or eight miles. In, in some of these locations, I don't know about the where you were, but in, in Christmas Island, you could easily walk that far if you wanted to. You don't have to. You could walk 200 yards if you want. But sometimes you, your guide says, well, do you want to go back to the boat? And you kind of get this, you kind of get this excitement of, well, there's fish tailing as far as I can see. No, I don't want to go back to the boat. And he's right, like, okay, right. well, I'll tell the boat to go around and pick us up. Okay, so the boat goes around, and now you look down there, and and two miles away, you see the boat. You're like, oh, okay, I'm walking two miles. I I didn't, I didn't understand that. Which you know, if you're young and fit and in good shape, it, that's fantastic. Like put sure. the boat five miles down there. But for some people that don't walk a lot, you know, now you're now you you got to walk for two miles, and you're doing it in some shoes that you've never worn before, and there's sand in there. And I saw some people get some pretty nasty blisters going through that like that. So. If you're going on one of those trips, break your boots in and make sure that, that, you know, you, you spend some time breaking them in because you're going to, you're going to wear them a lot. So what about anything else? Like, did, were you happy with all the stuff that you took on that trip? Or did you think that, you know, if I ever went back, I would do something different? Yeah, no, I mean, gear wise, I was pretty, pretty good. You know, I brought an eight and nine and a 12. Eight was mainly just for bonefish, nine kind of permit, milkfish, triggerfish rod. And then 12 was, a you know, just GT rod and uh, bluefin trevally. So gear-wise, I was really happy with that. I mean, I used all my rods. I brought with some flies, and then they actually had a little kind of fly shop thing on the island too, all just local patterns tied by the guide. So I always try to, you know— obviously use what they recommend because they're out there, you know, they know it works. And of course, a lot of these flies that have been tailored to, you know, specifically for GTs or triggerfish or milkfish or whatnot, things that you couldn't find just, you know, here in the States, you know, as easily unless you tied it yourself. So gear wise, I was really happy with that, you know, and then I brought a bunch of just, uh, you know, tippet, leader material, um, whatnot, and my reels, you know, and pliers, backpack. I mean, I tried to bring less because I'm a big person to me less is more you know but at the same time for as remote as you are you want to make sure you kind of have your bases covered so it's kind of this balance of trying to be lean and mean but also you know making sure that everything was kind of in check per se but yeah I was I was really happy with the rod choices you know that that to me is was perfect I like I said I used every rod the boots were great that's definitely a key piece of gear and then the flies, I mean, you know, some of the bonefish patterns, clousers, whatnot. I mean, you know, bonefish are bonefish. They're going to eat, you know, clousers just about anywhere. So you can bring stuff like that, I would recommend. But then definitely for some of the local, you know, species like a milkfish, a GT, triggerfish, it helped having, you know, the flies kind of on site there that I could choose from and kind of supplement in there too. Mm -hmm. That's good to know that they have that because a lot of places don't, you know, you got to not only bring the flies that you're going to use, but then some fly tying supplies and hooks and stuff like that, which I usually bring that stuff 
on a trip like that and and then just leave it with the guides. Yeah, exactly. After and and they they appreciate some of the fly tying materials more so than they would appreciate finished flies because now they can mess around and 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 try some stuff and you know some of them do some of them don't tie but what about the GT did you catch some of those? You know I I did not um, I caught bluefin but I never quite came tight to a GT. Did you see them? Oh yeah oh yeah they're there. Um, the coolest thing I had I think was. You know, it's kind of like sometimes they'll be in like little packs or one or two fish. But to me, the coolest thing is when they're singles, you know, just big singles kind of roam in the flats. And there's one particular instance, which is still one of, I think, the highlights of the trip, which is funny because I didn't end up catching the fish. So people say, well, how could it be cool? But for me, you know, I was up on, we were pulling, you know, it was about three, four feet deep water. The tide water was rushing in. Sun was out. Great viz. And you could see kind of like a tarpon, you know, this, this guy had a big old kind of black back, you know, so you could see him coming and, you know, he threw the cast out there and then you strip like hell, man, you know, just go crazy. You know, there's, there's no such thing as stripping too slow for a big GT, you know, that's what they want. You know, long, fast strips is how you do it. And big old guy, you know, he comes up and he starts tracking in and he just about, but he's, he never, you know, never came up, but just the feeling of that, you know. You talk about having your heart in your mouth. I mean, you're just like, wow, that's uh, about as visually, you know, a visual overload as it gets. And it was pretty cool. You know, Al- Al- Alphonse, where I was at, you know, it's a, it's a decent GT fishery. I would say probably Cosmolita or Astov are much better. So if you have your heart set on a GT, I would probably go to one of those islands. But for me, the opportunity, just the smorgasbord of all the variety and the GTs are there. And like I said, you still get, you know, two to three, four or five shots a day, which is perfect. So, um, it was fun. Yeah, that's cool. I love to hear the highlights. Like if you were to, if you were to, uh, just think back on it, it doesn't have to be a fish catch. I mean, some of the most incredible experiences I've had are just being someplace and just realizing, man, I am out here in the middle of nowhere. Like this is amazing. Like it may be a lifetime experience. What, what would you say, you know, did you have an experience like that on this trip to where you just, you, it was like surreal. You just couldn't believe that you were doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, that came earlier in the trip, you know, kind of with those neap tides, spent a lot of time when they're called the uh, finger flats, which are basically, you know, these kind of, you know, flats that are kind of elevated and they're all coral based. And there's a lot of cool, you know, kind of exotic looking sea grasses, you know, orange kind of green, green, you know, and I remember I was out there waiting, you know, on this particular coral finger. And I stopped and I looked around and like there was just nothing out there. And I looked to my left. I saw some big bone fish. I looked ahead. I could see a little trigger fish tail pop up. And I looked to my right and there was uh, some like I think it was a barracuda or something like that. I'm just like, wow, this is literally the coolest thing ever because it's like, okay, well, what do I want to do? Should I go left and, you know, try for the bone fish? Should I walk straight ahead and try to, you know, get the trigger fish or should I go right and just, you know, catch whatever that was, barracuda or whatnot, you know, just like, to me, it was just surreal. And then, like I said, you take a step back and you just, you think where you're at, you're just like, holy cow, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on this beautiful finger flat in the middle of nowhere, you know, which is basically a pristine environment. It's untouched, you know, the fishery's in great shape. There's bonefish to my left. There's a trigger fish in front of me and there's other fish to my right. You know, it's just like, it's just, it was truly a surreal moment for me just 
realizing, just kind of taking a step back. And at that point, honestly, I didn't even care if I was casting at that point. I was like, I just wanted to sit there and just kind of, you know, I've, I'm okay for a few minutes, you know, I'm just going to soak this up because this is, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That, that to me, those, those experiences, those, you know, all the fish that you catch and I'm sure you, there, there's some ones that will stand out. But to me, when I do a trip like that, it, it is those moments to where you're not fishing, you're not, you know, maybe you've just landed a fish, but it's this, it's this just short moment of reflection of just like, geez, look where I am. Like, this is just, unreal. And you can have that in the Florida Keys. You can have that on a freshwater stream in Montana, but sure. it's just this, just this short moment of reflection of just, just taking time. And I think as, as I get older, I have more of those moments than when I'm younger and just, just going hard at it, you know, and, and you never, you, you, you rarely take the time to step back and look unless the the situation is just so completely unreal that, you know, like seeing the Grand Tetons for the first time in your life or, or, you know, something where it is just undeniable. You just cannot believe what you're seeing. Otherwise, you're just staring at the dry fly or staring at the strike indicator or, you know, chasing down a tailing bonefish or whatever. And, and maybe as a young man, you don't look at kind of where you are as much. But as I get older, man, those, those moments, those are what the trip is made, made of for me. I don't know if you feel the same, maybe you will in a few years, you're a little bit younger than me, but that's cool, man. This sounds like, sounds like a really awesome trip. One of the things that I think is interesting and why I wanted to do this podcast with you is because I've been able to kind of watch your fishing career, your, your, your ability to do these trips and, and, and you kind of progress as an angler since I guess we first met at one of the saltwater experience weekends at Hawks. Yeah. Is that 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. Yeah. 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 So between 2012 and, and now you've really come a long way in your, in your angling. And, uh, I'd like for you to kind of walk us through what that looked like for you. Yeah, for sure. You know, for me, I didn't really grow up in a super outdoorsy family, you know, a lot of sports, which was totally fun too. Um, my grandpa got me into, you know, just regular spin fishing. I grew up in Wisconsin, you know, fishing for a lot of perch, bluegill, things like that, you know, at a young age. So I always kind of had it there. And then, you know, middle school, high school, you kind of get away from that and get in sports mode and whatnot. And what happened was after college, you know, I was down in Florida and, uh, was doing some snook fishing down in the, um, in the mangroves, you know, just a little spin trip, chucking shrimp or whatnot. And I kind of had this aha moment, like, yeah, like this is, this is me, you know, like I've always loved this, but it kind of got suppressed a little bit just, you know, through high school and sports and whatnot. And then I got back into fishing, you know, I started, I went down to Key West and, you know, I, uh, did a, a live bait, you know, kind of spin trip for, permit with uh captain jared sear you know catching permit um which was fun down in key west and we were waiting for the tide to kind of switch out and he had a bunch of fly rods um in his rod rack on the boat and i said hey man you know i know we're just kind of waiting for the tide to switch over here i mean do you mind if i just grab a fly rod kind of mess around i've seen some people doing this and i think this could kind of be me and of course he was like sure you know and i, I picked up the rod and it was it was amazing because like after just one you know i think i couldn't even throw it more than 10 feet, you know, but 
after some pointers from him and, you know, I kind of messed around a little bit and I was like, man, this just, I think this is really going to be me from now on. So, you know, I came back from that and went back home and I bought just like a basic fly rod and reel and, you know, started practicing on the pond and, you know, went to the local fly shop, got a couple casting lessons and then just practiced, 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 you know, and then after that, I just kind of went full, full blown into it, you know, and started really, you know, trying to, I was reading a lot, you know, going down to the keys, doing guided trips. That's when you, you know, connect me with uh, Derek Rust, who's been obviously one of my best friends and is a phenomenal guide to fish with and, you know, super into fly fishing. And luckily, you know, throughout the years, I've been able to fish with some of the best guides all up and down the keys, you know, Key Largo to Key West, top-notch people. And really my progression as an angler you know, I fish some of the tournaments now, the fly tournaments. Um, really, my progression as an angler, I really owe all to them. I mean, yeah, there's a component to where, you know, I got to cast and, you know, practice and be proficient at it. But really, just with the guides I fished with down there, the things that they have taught me, um, I just, I really, like I said, a lot of my ability and success, I, I really just goes back to them just because I'm a product of fishing with some of the best in the business. And I'm very thankful and happy, you know, and lucky to have had the opportunity to do so and continue to do so. That's cool. What about when you, what about the difference between kind of going down there, fishing with different guides? And I know this kind of started with Derek too, but now you're thinking, should I fish in a tournament? Like what is, why talk about the, uh, the move to kind of fish in a tournament, what that looks like. Sure. And as you know, I mean, it's definitely a different dynamic, you know, for me, it was, it was kind of a, kind of a multiple factors that kind of went into it. One, of course, you know, at the end of the day, you want to hopefully at least have kind of a skill set to where you feel proficient enough to, you know, go out there and, you know, feel comfortable competing and whatnot. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's a competition, right? But for me, some of the other driving factors, it was really more, I'm, I'm, I'm a big history guy. Um, anything I do, I, that was always my favorite subject in high school, you know, history, anything I do, I love learning about the history of it. And for me, the history of saltwater fly fishing, a lot of it, you know, whether it's the, just the techniques, you know, the people, um, a lot of it kind of culminated and started with a lot of these, um, fly fishing tournaments that are held in the keys, some of which, um, a couple of the tarpon tournaments, you know, the gold club, the Don Holly, the fall fly, the bonefish tournament. I mean, these things have been going on since the sixties and seventies. So there's a lot of really just history, you know, tradition and whatnot tied up into these things. And for me, just kind of being a history buff, that was really cool and appealing to me just to be a part of that. Almost that I could kind of help, you know, carry on the legacy, you know, that Steve Huff started back in the seventies you know, or Sandy Moret or Ted Williams or any of these guys, you know, a lot of the history of fly fishing, at least in saltwater, can be traced to and from these tournaments. So to me, that was appealing just to have the opportunity to be a part of that. And then another part of it too was um, kind of the social or the community aspect of it too, because you get to really meet some phenomenal anglers and some phenomenal guides and it's cool. It's kind of like its own little network and ecosystem within, you know, fly fishing. And that was really neat for me too, just because 
as you know, salt as fly fishing, especially in salt water, is still pretty niche as far as, you know, a lot of people, maybe they kind of know it, but they don't really know it, you know? And what was cool for me, at least, you know, for during these tournaments is you have whatever, 10, 15, 25 guides who all just, they totally get it, you know? Everyone's there for the same reason. They're passionate about the fish. They're passionate about the fishery, the sport, and everybody gets it, you know? I always, it's funny, I always, I try to take pictures and videos of, you know, fly fishing for bonefish or tarpon just to serve as almost an educational component just to show people. Because, you know, they, I take a week of vacation, right? I go down to the Keys and I fish for tarpon, right? And I'll be talking to people, just, you know, at work, the water cooler, whatever, and like, what'd you do all week? Oh, you know, I was down in the Keys fly fishing for tarpon. And, you know, just, you just get a blank stare, you know, just people have no idea what that means. And they never will <laughs> truly until you do it. But, you know, things like that kind of help. But it's just, it's cool to be around people who are just, they get it. You know, they're on top of it. They get it. They love it as much as you do. And that sense of community is really neat. And then the last part for me like I said, with the competition and whatnot, it, it's kind of cool. And it's a little bit, maybe extra adrenaline rush, you know, gives you a little bit extra, you know, game face or whatnot. You know, it's like I tell people, it's like, well, you know, a filet mignon by itself is awesome. But, you know, you put a little crab on it, Oscar style. That's kind of what the tournament does. You know, it's just a little bit extra, you know, kind of kick, which is kind of cool. Um, so those are kind of the reasons why I was kind of gravitated to and still love to fish in a couple of the tarpon and the bonefish tournaments every year. What about if you were to think about it right now and think, if I hadn't have graduated to fishing in the tournaments, how do you think you would have progressed as an angler to this point? Do you think it would be the same or different or? Not at all. I, I don't think I would have been, I don't think without the element of tournament fishing, I do not think I would be in the same spot I am today as an angler. The reason for that is obviously... I mean, it pushes you. It really does. You know, it's kind of like, well, yeah, you can work out by yourself and still get great results, but eight, nine times out of 10, you know, if you have, whether it's a group of people or a trainer, you know, it kind of serves as an extra kind of benchmark or accountability measure, whatever you want to call it, you know, it kind of helps. It kind of shows you kind of what the benchmark is as far as, like I said, because in these tournaments, you really do get some of the best, in my opinion, the best, you know, people out there fishing for these things. And it really makes you step your game up and kind of serves as almost kind of like a benchmark is, okay, that's kind of where I want to be, or that's, you know, and it really drives you and it pushes you. And for me, that was another reason why I went to the Seychelles in the first place, because I knew I'd have the opportunity to get in front of a lot of fish, have a lot of bent rod, you know, practice fighting, all that good stuff, you know, seeing the fish. So to me, that was just the tournament component itself was another one of the small reasons why I went to the Seychelles because I knew it would make me better for that. So for me, at least in my opinion and experience, the tournament angle has absolutely continued to push, push me, you know, drive me, motivate me and continue to make me a better angler. And, you know, that's why I go out and fish with different guides because I want to learn different things, you know, and just to me, it's just, I, I still think I have so much runway ahead of me in this sport and I'm just so so stoked with where I'm at and where I continue to, you know, learn just one or two small things, you know, from, from different people. And I figure if just over time, if I can learn one or two things here and there, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you know, I, it could be pretty, pretty awesome, you know, but for me, absolutely, man. I mean, the tournaments definitely really motivate you to, you know, continue to go out and cast and practice and get better and, you know, try different things and, you know, fish with different people and, 
absolutely. So for me, like I said, I'd, I'd still be, even without the tournaments, if I never did it, I'd still be angling. I'd still be having a fun time. But there's no doubt, in my opinion, that those fishing those things, participating in them has absolutely made me a better angler. Yeah. Oh, well, there, I don't think that you could, well, I don't know. I guess you could fish in some tournaments and, and just kind of do it once or twice and just kind of be like, well, that's not for me. And, and sure. that's fine. It's not for everybody. It's definitely not. But it, I, I don't know. I would always, I would see a lot of my anglers come across the bow and I'm like, man, this guy, he could, he could do some good in a tournament. And for whatever reason, they just didn't have any interest in it. And I wouldn't push it too hard, but they, there was always a question of like, like, why, why would I want to do that? Like I only get so much time off a year and I want to enjoy it. You know, and that seems like, you know, that seems kind of like my job, like my job's super competitive. Like I am, I'm in this super competitive field. And when I come out here, we just have a good time. I'm like, that's cool, man, whatever. That's fine. But if it's somebody that is like, I want to get as good as I can, as fast as I can. I don't know that there's a better way than, than getting in those tournaments because man, it's a, it's a totally different deal. It is, it is totally a different deal. There's no time to sit there and watch the sun come up and admire it and think about it. I mean, you're, 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 you're going hard. And I don't know, for those people that kind of are on the fence, I would say that, you know what, even if you didn't come away from fishing the tournaments and say, you know, that's how I want to fish. Every time I go fishing, I want to be in a tournament situation. There are those anglers too. They, they love the tournaments like so much that that's, that's fun to them. But then there are other people that kind of like, I just want to, I just want to get better. Well, fish, fish a few tournaments and and you're going to get a lot better really fast, especially if you're with a really experienced tournament guide, you're just going to learn the tricks that make the difference between catching the fish and not catching the fish. And I don't know, it's cool. It was, it was very beneficial for me as a guide to, to get into those tournaments and compete against those same people that you're talking about. And, and, you know, at that point you're competing, you, you just move to the pros. Like that's, you start, you, you go up to Isla Mirada and, and enter one of those tarpon tournaments. You are now competing with the best of the best. There's, there's no question about it. Yeah. And it's like I said, it's, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal opportunity. I, you know, I, I get, it's definitely not for everybody. You know, it's, I'm not, that's only about half of my fishing. You know, I, I still love going out and relaxing and fishing for fun, um, and whatnot too, but that's definitely something I always do look forward to. Um, it makes you step your game up a little bit. And I don't know, like I said, it's, um, I would, like you said, I would definitely encourage people to give it a shot and just, you'd be amazed at, uh, you know, what could happen. And it's, it's been super beneficial for me and, um, something I definitely, you know, look forward to every year and, you know, continuing to do for sure. Cool, man. So with this, uh, the Seychelles trip over and done with, do you have another one that you're planning? Do you have another place in mind that you'd like to go or, or are you kind of at home for a little bit? No, no, no. I'm always, I'm always looking ahead to what's next. <laughs> so, uh, what's next for me on the docket, you know, I really enjoyed, for me, just the opportunity to go out and experience a different part of the world, different fishery, you know, different culture, whatnot. So for me, I think my next trip is I'm actually going to head down to uh, South America, uh, to Guyana, and I'm going to fly fish for uh, Arapaima. Oh man, you, that's my soft spot of my heart. That's that's my dream fish. That's the one that if I could go for one fish right now, I think, I mean, when people ask me that, they're like, well, if you could fish for one fish, what would it be? I'm like, man, I think it might be an Arapaima because those things are so badass. They, 
are like a laid up tarpon, but they're 12 feet long and, and just, I just can't even imagine it. It just seems like that, that could be the ultimate game fish. I, you know, know, I think so. And that's definitely what attracted, you know, me to it as everything you just said. And then again, the opportunity just to spend some time, you know, talking about just, you know, the trip as a whole, the environment as a whole, you know, kind of in the Amazon, you know, down there to me, I've always wanted to visit that part of the world. And, um, you know, if you could, you know, Amazon, you had me at Amazon, but if you add Arapaima, wow, now I'm really in, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. um, well, hoping to get you, down there next spring. So when you start planning that trip, we need to do another one of these with somebody that's been, because I understand that there's some, there's some real, I don't know, maybe it's urban legends about how tough these fish are and how, how you have to soup up the tackle and then maybe even make your own tackle to handle some of these things. And, uh, I don't know. I want to talk to some people about it because that, that fish is so cool. And I, there, in the Tennessee aquarium where my parents live, you used to take the kids into the Tennessee aquarium and there would be a, a tank and it was an Amazon tank. And they had, they had two, no, they just had one Arapaima in there. And this thing was so big. And I just, and, and sometimes it would kind of lay on the surface Sure. And I would just, I would just walk straight to that thing and just stare at that fish for, you know, for an hour until my family would catch up with me. And they're like, don't you want to see over here? No, no I want to <laughs> see right. I want I want this one. This is what is interesting. But that fish just looks so cool. That, that's something. All right. So that's cool, man. So French Guiana for the Arapaima. You're going to be making your own fly lines very soon. I think that's what I heard break <laughs> that's right that's uh that's another thing i like to uh you know I, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and whatnot so i always like to dabble and i love to make things or play with you know my hands or whatnot tie flies create things build things so that's another definitely uh <laughs> something that's in the work too i have some pretty uh unique ideas i'm sure uh you know some of our mutual associates may have shared with you so absolutely <laughs> that's cool man that's cool well if uh if anybody wants to kind of follow you along on your on your fishing journey is, do, are you active on social media can people follow you or check you out yeah yeah absolutely absolutely you know uh definitely twitter and instagram i've got the same handle for both k and then my last name gem is gmas65 is where you can find me absolutely what's the significance of 65 that was uh you know back back to the glory days man high school football i was uh, i played center and i was number 65 so that's that's where that comes into play <laughs> that's cool sometimes if i have to pick a number or something like that i go with 38 because that was my i was 138 pounder in high school wrestling so sometimes i'll pick 38 as my as my number but it's not in my email address so you're, oh, yeah. you're taking it's, it a step further now, yeah, I'm one up in you there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool, man. All right. Well, look, follow Kyle. Check him out. I'm sure you post some stuff on the Seychelles there on your Instagram. And if not, then you can follow him in preparation for the Arapaima. That might be yep. It's coming, man. Like I said, it'll be completely future. opposite of what I just did, but I uh, can't wait. <laughs> well, that's cool, man. Well, thanks for telling us this story. I appreciate it, man. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good, Tom. Thank you, buddy. All right, see ya. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. 
Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.